the topic tonight is basically the proposals out there, although I don't want to get too much in the weeds. I, I, I'm leveraging off of the idea of these proposals to cancel or sometimes called forgive student debt and related issues, free tuition or uh, substantially freer tuition and quibbling over whether that's just community colleges, other colleges, what kind of colleges, for-profit colleges, nonprofit, private, public, all that. But philosophically, I wanna go at this somewhat philosophically, a little bit of economics and politics as well. And as I normally do, I'm gonna say things for about 15 or 20 minutes. And then I'm curious what you folks think. Um, I first researched this heavily about, uh, I don't know, five years ago, and actually had a student session at Duke. And the students are obviously very interested in this or their parents are. Um, all right, the, the general contours of the, of the issue. Uh, there has been a massive increase in student debt in the last uh, two decades, but mo mostly in the last decade. Uh, if, if you remember, some of you may remember in 2010, part of the Occupy Wall Street agitation was, and that was during the financial crisis where uh, banks and car companies were getting bailouts. A lot of the students who gathered uh, down near Wall Street were looking for student loan bailouts. And uh, that's a good thing to remember because their story went something like this. I've just incurred you know, $100,000 in debt and I have a sociology degree in whatever, uh, queer dance studies or something like that. And so the first thing to ask is, wait a minute, why did you spend all that money on a non-remunerative degree? That would be an interesting thing to ask. Would that happen out of self-interest in a free market? Probably not. And so even so, why aren't you embarrassed to be admitting, admitting this publicly rather than just go fix the situation yourself? You know, what's it got to do with us? But it was a clear, just a clear demand for forgiveness and cancellation because others were getting bailed out as well. So it wasn't really a logical argument. It was more the idea of, hey, why can't we get bailouts too for doing stupid things? Um, but I wanted to also kind of suggest a parallel to give another hook to this. The housing crisis, the mortgage crisis of 10 years ago. Uh, students to this day, when I teach them, they do not know really, of course they're getting further away from that now. So they were eight or nine when it happened. They think the financial crisis of 08, 09 was caused by Wall Street greed or deregulation. It was actually caused by a deliberate government program to put people in houses they couldn't afford. They were called subprime loans. Subprime meant below average quality, almost like the equivalent of junk bonds. Non-credit worthy people. Now, now think of the argument though, and by the way, this was bipartisan. Clinton did it and Bush did it to an even greater extent. So this program really began in the late 90s. And it's very similar to what's happened in tuitions and colleges. So, so follow this logic. It goes something like this. Homeowners tend to be more stable in family life. They tend to have higher income. I mean, homeowners versus renters. And your know, homeowners have all these great demographics, uh, health and longevity and marital status and all those good things. So the argument was, we need to put more people in homes so they will benefit by all these wonderful things. Reversing cause and effect. I mean, effectively, literally reversing cause and effect, not realizing that 
responsible behavior and savings and having a job and making sure you don't have kids out of wedlock and building a nuclear family would enable you eventually to get a home, get a house. Uh, it doesn't mean that everybody else renting, you know, can't afford a house. I mean, some people rent because it's the preferred choice, but that policy was a complete disaster because by trying to boost, which was they were trying to do, they were trying to boost the home ownership rate at the time, it was 65% nationally in the U.S. And they said it, it should be higher than that. It should be 70%. It should be perhaps 75%. So they went on a deliberate program of using the government-sponsored uh, agencies, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, to subsidize and secure and, and uh, guarantee loans of lower quality. And then they passed programs that said, you don't have to put much money down when you buy the house. So you don't have to make much of an investment yourself. Uh, of course, this led to a very precarious situation where millions of people bought homes, basically borrowing 100% of the money. And when the loan value, when the house values declined, they just defaulted. So mass defaults, which proceeded to cascade through the financial system, causing mortgage-backed securities and banks to fail. So I, I interpret that whole event, well, it's not really an event, it was like a decade long program and its collapse as a massive government failure. And, but it has a pattern similar to schools, the school things, the, the higher education issue is, is going on longer and it's not as acute maybe, but the principle is the same. The idea, well, the idea is something like, like, here is a valuable thing uh, to a, uh, a, an academic degree you know, at a major institution. It's a valuable thing. And just like homeownership, it too can be associated with higher income, higher job security, advancement, that kind of thing, uh, socioeconomic statistics that anyone can pull up. And this kind of logic, if so, uh, the market doesn't seem to be providing these or making them affordable to enough people who can't afford it. Let's set aside for a moment the aptitude of people applying to these uh, institutions. So let's subsidize it, let's finance it. And just as the artificial subsidization of house, homes inflated their price, so the artificial subsidization of tuitions inflated their price. So what begins as a seemingly altruistic call to help those who can't afford this wonderful value, they end up inflating the value anyway and making it unaffordable. Now, now, sometimes this did not happen with housing, thankfully. Sometimes they meet the artificially inflated prices with price controls. They literally just tell, they might tell home builders, don't charge more than X for your house prices. They presumably do the same thing to universities. They could say, stop using this extra tuition subsidization for just boosting tuitions, we put a cap on that. Now that would have caused, you know, if you know your economics, you know, that causes shortages when the price is held below what the market value will be. In this case, we're talking about an artificial market value, right? Because of all the government subsidization, there would be shortages. Well, that's not what we've seen. And I guess that's the only good part of this story, but we still have this massive inflation and now of the tuition price. And that is really what's related to the debt problem. The debt problem, uh, the student debt problem, is a derivative problem. It's a derivative of the fact that the tuitions are so high and rising and that they had to borrow a lot of money to go to school. 
And they had to borrow a lot of money to go to school because the tuitions themselves are inflated. And the tuitions themselves are inflated because, again, it was decided as this kind of collectivist, altruist government policy that uh, access to higher education should be expanded on the, on the backs of the taxpayer. So I just wanted to give you that context in those two cases. There are many more you can name, by the way, where government does this and where the problem is initially caused by government and then its subsequent follow-up doesn't make it any better. Now, I think we're dealing with something like the injustice associated with just canceling debts. And uh, there are various proposals out there. So uh, Senator Warren and Sanders uh, are on record saying they wanna cancel $50,000 in student debt uh, per person. Biden says only 10,000, right? So they really don't differ on the principle of the issue. They're just haggling over numbers. And the other thing they haggle over is whether to just do it by executive decree. Apparently, apparently Biden could do that or whether to do it by legislative enactment. Again, those are just the, to me, minor details of, of the mechanics of it, whereas the principle of it has been conceded. Now, it might interest you that the first thing to think that you think of when you think of, well, can Biden just eliminate it with the magic wand of an executive pen or Warren and Sanders in the legislature? Why would government be able to do that? Lo and behold, most of the 1.7 trillion in student debt is to the government. How the heck did that happen? Going back until World War II, college financing in the US was totally private. There was almost no government involvement, whatever. Uh, it's true that a smaller sliver of the population went to college, but it wasn't because only rich people went to college. All sorts of different people went to college. And typically how it was funded for those who couldn't afford the full tuition was endowments, scholarships. I mean, you did have loans, but it would be loans from the college endowment. And so it was a kind of self-contained thing with a check on it. And of course, when you think about that kind of lending, you would pay attention to how the student was doing. You would pay attention to what kind of degree the, the, the student was pursuing. And so that there'd be some match and some connection between um, to make them more responsible. Now, the private market it, to some degree, now this would be just bank loans, uh, banks and savings and loans did provide student loans in the 50s uh, on the heels of the GI Bill, which was passed in 1944. I can talk a bit about that in a minute. And, and so, again, I, I don't think there's anything in capitalism that forbids private banks or SNLs from assessing loan requests from students. After all, when you think about it, actually, if a student goes to a bank and says, you know, I am going to get a college degree, I have great prospects, I expect to go into this kind of business. I expect to make this kind of money and I'll pay you back. That is actually no different than a business entrepreneur story. And I think it actually might be even more, of, it might be even a safer loan in the sense that the student is, isn't asking, you know, to start a new business or a restaurant or some high failure rate enterprise. Um, the statistics are pretty clear on if you go to Dartmouth, you know, and you want to be a lawyer, <laughs> what kind of law degree will you get? This, those were not difficult loans to make, but they were still private sector loans. Now, unfortunately, in the U.S., this impetus for government financing schools 
really took off in World War II. So the first major intervention was the GI Bill, if you've heard of that. So this is guys coming home, having been conscripted already, sent to World War II. This is the ones who came back and weren't dead, came back and a program was passed to give them free tuition. Now this wasn't mandating that colleges charge no tuition, which is the current proposal for some. It was the tuitions are left as they are, but the taxpayer will fund the veteran if they went to college. So it did somewhat artificially boost the number of guys who went to college. On the other hand, it was accepted. And you can see why this might be accepted, not as a gift, but as restitution in some way. We just took two or three years of your life. Uh, you might even be injured by having been in World War II. And um, maybe it's just part of deficits, uh, excuse me, maybe it's just part of military spending. Um, and so it was a plausible program, but just so you know, I mean, that was the beginnings of government financing and then it did contribute not only to more people going to college than probably would have otherwise, but also to the beginnings of an inflation of tuitions. Now, the next big step was actually motivated by Milton Friedman. This is a, this is a remarkable story because Milton Friedman, the great free market economist, Chicago economist, won the Nobel in 76, in the 50s as a treasury uh, uh, analyst, he came up with the idea of government funding STEM degrees. Why would there be, and this was a 1958 program called the National Defense Education Act. My gosh, what was going on in 1958? Sputnik was the year before. So there was a great concern that not enough people were getting STEM degrees. STEM is uh, science, technology, you know, engineering and math, the kind of things that would contribute to the space program ultimately. I started finding and subsidizing that in something called the National Defense Education Act. And it started making direct loans. Now, some of these weren't gifts as they had been in the um, GI Bill but they started guaranteeing loans. That was a different, uh, not, not uh, guaranteeing loans, excuse me, direct loans. So they were still loans, but they were government being more involved in, in the process. Now the other big one, 1965, this is only seven years later, as part of the quote unquote great society program, right around the same time that Medicare and Medicaid were put in, um, the Higher Education Act and the Federal Family Education Loan Program, again, more subsidizations, more built on the grounds that, wow, college is really expensive. Gee, I wonder why college is getting so expensive. I mean, some, in some cases, the quality of the schools was increasing because you'd expect that, you know, generally. We're not saying that we shouldn't be saying that in a free society, the quality of college education or the, or the facilities, which people point to, uh, being upgraded shouldn't cost more. But by this time, in the mid-60s and 70s, economists were already starting to see uh, tuitions, books, room and board indices, price indices, galloping way ahead, going up way faster than consumer prices and other things. So there was a, a noticeable disproportionate boom in the prices of these things that didn't seem to be attributable to much other than increased government subsidization. And of course, that just fed to more people saying, well, we need more government support because it's getting so expensive. Um, anyway, that pretty much brings us up to the present. All that's happened since um, is the government 
largely taking over this is the big story of the last decade, all student loans. So the big change was 2010. You may forget this, but in 2010, when almost no one was looking, and when Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were failing, so was a thing called Sally Mae. And Sally Mae was the student loan guarantor, whereas Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac guaranteed home mortgages. Sally Mae, a government agency, it's just short for a, a long string acronym, student loan something, um, it failed as well. So there were massive student loan defaults. 2010 is pretty much the year that there was Occupy Wall Street. So lo and behold, Congress passes something called the, uh, what's it called? Do I have it yet? I don't have the name of it. Student Aid and Fiscal Responsibility Act. And what did it do? It basically banished all private bank lending to students. It basically said, no one should be profit off of these students with their loans. So they, they, they bought out, the government, the federal government bought out all the private loans that could be found and it became the sole lender. So that's a long winding way of saying, how could Biden stand up and say, I'm gonna cancel loans? Because he's the lender as president uh, or, the, or these congressmen, the senators, they could sit there and say, we own the loans. We're the lender to these um, students. So we can unilaterally, this is how they're thinking, I'm not justifying this. We can get you unilaterally forgive loans, extend loans, restructure loans. Some of them are talking about why not just forgive loans to black students? Why? To narrow the racial wealth gap. Why? Well, to make up for, I'm giving an argument they give, decades of inferior treatment of blacks, including uh, admissions to universities. So you can see all the standard kind of political things, the racial, uh, the political interest groups, certainly students and professors generally lean toward the more statist side of the spectrum. So uh, any arguments that say the taxpayer shall shoulder the burden of these debts, you know, versus what Tucker Carlson and other conservatives would prefer to do. They have a more populist message. What is their message? Go make the universities eat it. Go, go tell Harvard, Dartmouth, Yale, Stanford, tell them to take a hit to their endowments. And um, of course they don't have the bulk of the loans anymore. Uh, so there's pressure from that side, uh, but the whole thing is I think a complete mess because largely at root because of this underlying premise that this is a this is a right. It's no different than saying healthcare is right. Or uh, my own a home, even if I can't afford it, right to get a college degree, even if I can't afford it, even if it's uh, not a worthy degree. It's a big problem. And it's it's they all stem, I believe, still from the root cause being uh, altruism, that the, the betters must sacrifice for the lessers. Now, there's a little twist here that's odd and populist. Your argument would go something like this. How can they get away with doing that? Because college students generally are seen as privileged. Uh, forgetting race for a moment, they're seen as, uh, you know, the dream of the crop and they get to go to college. The argument from the populist side would be, wait a minute, how can you cancel, say, 50,000 in debt from a student who went to Yale and yet Dallas Street a new haven 
there are poor people who are not going to get a $50,000 check. I mean, when you cancel a liability, that increases your net worth just as much as if they gave you a check and you put it in the bank. So cancellation of debt increases net worth. The argument is, wait a minute, all these college kids, these privileged kids who went to college, why should they get this disproportionate benefit? Now, that's not to me a philosophically sound argument because anyone can just come in and say, oh, okay, we'll remedy that by writing $50,000 checks to those who didn't go to college. So you see where if you're not consistent in this argument, you just get a, like a massive uh, payout and cancellation of debt at the same time. So, so uh, it will be curious to see where this goes. I do think there will be some kind of cancellation, but I think they're also going to have to, if they, but they're also going to have to do it soon because there is the beginnings of pushback the other way. But it's not. It's I don't know if there's much of a populist argument from the right to be able to say don't bail out these college kids. Um, one last thing, that, and I'll leave it to you guys. In uh, economics, um, there is this principle of public goods versus private goods. And this is somewhat of a technical issue, but economists debate uh, what are considered private goods and public goods, private meaning perfectly uh, uh, provisioned by the private market based on the profit motive. And public goods are seen as those that the market tends not to produce or doesn't produce enough of, or it's just difficult to provide. So the standard ones are, and objectivism talks about this, of course, national defense, police, courts. From a philosophic perspective, if those are things that defend and uphold individual rights, they're justified government functions for that reason. But from an economic standpoint, many economists will also say, well, those things are difficult for the markets to provide. Why? They're what's called free rider problems. If someone doesn't want to pay to contribute to those, nevertheless, you still get national defense. Nevertheless, you still benefit from law and order and the court system and the police and things like that. So the argument is in cases like that, one, it's a legitimate government function. Two, you shouldn't be a free rider, so we get to tax you. Now, if that was all government did, the tax load would be very light. They do way more than that. I mean, last time I checked the government federal budget, probably 98% of it is on stuff other than those three, be less than that, 90%. The federal, national, the uh, military budget's very big, but probably excessively big. Uh, at any rate, back to education, it is considered in economics, sadly enough, the education is a public good. Um, now, the criteria they use is, you know, whether you can charge someone for the good and nobody else, uh, you know, is a freeloader. That's definitely true. I mean, you can have a, you can definitely provide education and exclude those who don't pay. It's easy enough. You close the door or you check the enrollment records. And if they haven't paid, they don't get the courses. They don't get the to get the enrollment. But the way economists argue it is totally social utilitarian grounds. They say something like an educated citizenry is a better society. Uh, a more educated voter electorate is uh, gonna be a better, safer society. And, and therefore, Senna, here's the, here's the uh, non sequitur. Therefore, government should subsidize it. Otherwise markets would leave people uh, uneducated. Uh, it's a it's a fallacy. It's a mistake, but it's one of the things out there contributing to this. But of course, that argument's been around for at least a hundred years or so. That's not really, in my view, what caused 
this massive increase in government involvement in financing education. I'm not really an expert on the international aspects of this, but the few cases I've studied, apparently the U.S. is pretty unique in this regard, which is, uh, which is somewhat surprising to me. If the welfare state began in Europe, which they did, starting basically with Bismarck, I would have guessed that there was way more government funding of uh, higher education in Europe compared to the U.S., and the U.S. was only just catching up. But no, apparently the U.S. is way ahead in the bad sense in the way ahead of financing this uh, compared to Europe. Um, now, I haven't said anything about lower education, the public schools, the high schools, the elementary schools, and things like that. My own view is that government shouldn't be financing any of this at any level. Uh, but the focus tonight, of course, is mostly on these proposals to, uh, can't, to lower tuitions, have free tuitions, and cancel debts. One last thing. Um, he who pays the piper names the tune. Okay, so that principle is operative here as well. We forget that the more government finances anything, the more it has a say in how the product is and services delivered. And that is a huge problem. It is, if it was just a financial issue of imbalances associated with cost and tuition inflation and debts, and things like that, that'd be bad enough. But on top of it, massive increase in government spending on um, uh, schools all the way up from, from beginning all the way up uh, contributes to government saying what should be taught and um, determining what should be taught and the whole process of immunizing schools from competition is a big problem. So it's, it's even a further problem when it gets to research. So the NSF, for example, the National Science Foundation, there are other agencies, they finance professors' research. And in all the fields, by the way, not just the hard sciences, they finance them also in poli-sci and econ, uh, say climate studies. Um, and there's a real bias there uh, against uh, capitalist uh, conclusions and a real bias in favor of anti-capitalist conclusions. And uh, those who, those science writers and others who write about junk science in all its dimensions, whether it's climatology or other things, are really worried about the diminution in quality of research at universities. Now notice this is quite apart from the teaching, it's quite apart from the tuitions, it's just the financing of research and that that research is being bastardized that it's being twisted in a way that is in favor of government intervention. Um, so that's an issue to, con to consider as well. And that's someone in the challenge and externalities. Yes, regardless of the public goods argument, it's argued that education has positive externalities. Externalities meaning things that benefit others who aren't part of the transaction, and those others don't pay for it. Those others get this uh, wonderful indirect benefit of all these college students coming on campuses and improving the country. And so, yeah, so the argument is uh, that thing has to be subsidized and so this one subsidized. It's, a, it's the opposite of the negative externalities argument that economists give for things like pollution. So pollution, they say, well, that's a negative externality. That's a case where you are imposing on others a cost. You're not delivering a benefit they don't pay for. You're imposing a cost that you don't pay for. So that's usually met 
with a tax, whereas a pond externality is met with a subsidy from government, usually one just financing the other. So, so we're, we're talking about the education side. And yes, on the education side, they'll say, this is a positive externality, therefore government should subsidize it. Now, even if you want to go that route, which I wouldn't, I would just say, okay, don't go the externalities route. That's just an unjustified uh, argument for expanding the size and scope of government. But sometimes you can go the route of saying, well, hasn't it become a negative externality? <laughs> In other words, ha hasn't it become the case that this whole system is so corrupted now that hordes of people are coming off campus uh, polluted with really bad ideas and really bad policy, uh, like, like cancel tuition, the cancel debt, that there are negative externalities, so they shouldn't be subsidized. That's a that's an argument within an argument. So I I will leave it there.